0: There are a few distinct scenes that I want to focus on, but overall, it seems that Charles Dickinson's Christmas Carol food descriptions may have come from traditions from America. Stay tuned and find out. your host Glenn Warren and welcome to another serving of Seasons Eatings, the podcast which explores the history and origins of your favorite Christmas foods. Seasons Eatings can be found wherever you download your favorite podcasts. If you haven't already, I would ask you to subscribe. That way you won't miss an episode when it's released and all future episodes will be available without you having to search for them. If you can please take a minute and leave me a five-star review, I would greatly appreciate it. Reviews help others find the podcast and help me know that you're enjoying what I'm doing. And if you let me know you've left a review, I'll send you a Seasons Eating sticker as a personal thank you. Seasons Eatings is also found on most socials. All the links can be found in the show notes, which can be found at SeasonsEatingsPodcast.com. And while you're there you can buy me an eggnog. Just click on the little cup at the top of the page and leave a donation for as little as $3. Each donation is used for the running of the podcast and its general upkeep, so any help would be greatly appreciated. Finally, you can let me know how I'm doing, leave a suggestion for a future episode, or just say hello at sinseatingspodcast at gmail.com. Welcome to a bonus episode of Seasons Eatings. I'm your host, Glenn Warren, and today is Christmas Podcast Day, November 1st. Other Christmas podcasts on your feed are exploring different versions of Charles Dickinson's A Christmas Carol, whether it be movie adaptations, radio adaptations, or even different book stories. But I wanted to take something a little different. Of course, my show is about food, so it would be unremiss if I didn't talk about the food of Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol. One can't go through the holiday season without hearing, seeing, or even listening to a version of Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol. It is often held up to be one of the quintessential markers of the traditional holiday meal. I've talked about some of the food in the story before in my episodes about the Smoking Bishop, Plum Pudding, and Turkey, and I'll put those links to those in the show notes. In 1843, when Dickens first published A Christmas Carol, the Christmas he depicted was a shift away from the holiday of the early 1800s. To many at this time, Christmas celebrations had degenerated into a raucous public parties, and in America, they were shunned by Puritans, Calvinists, Presbyterians, and Quakers. Dickens visited America in 1842, the year before he published A Christmas Carol. Stephen Fisk wrote in his 1901, in his article The Dickens' Christmas, that he must have heard of the annual holiday that we inherited from our Dutch ancestors and developed and improved into the greatest of family festivals, For after his visit to this continent, Dickens was, in regard to Christmas, a changed and altogether different man. Attractive though this idea might be, it's wrong. Dickens' daughter, Mary, or Mamie, declared that Christmas was always a time which in our home was looked forward to with eagerness and delight. And to my father, it was a time dearer than any other part of the year, I think. We have already noted Dickens's enthusiasm for the festival as early as 1835. We also have records of the charades party he hosted on Christmas Eve in 1840, closely followed by another on the 4th of January with dancing as well as charades. Christmas practices in America early in the 19th century were as varied as in England. But the variations has more to do with region and community than with class. Until the early 19th century, Christmas celebrations were banned in most of New England. In 1659, Calvinists saw to it that in Massachusetts, a fine of five shillings would be imposed on anyone observing any such day as Christmas or the like, either by forbearing of labor, feasting, or any such way. In Connecticut, reading the Book of Common Prayer was forbidden, making mince pies, playing cards, and performing on musical instruments. In 1749, a Swedish visitor to Philadelphia noted that Quakers did not celebrate Christmas at all. Presbyterians could not bring themselves to approve of it, but grudgingly held Christmas services to stop members defecting to Anglicanism. It was a different matter, though, in the South, however. Virginian planters strove to perpetuate the Old English revels, There were balls, fox hunts, and all sorts of entertainment. Homes and churches were decorated with greenery. Carols were sung. Celebrations continued until Twelfth Night, or the 6th of January, and later. The first states to make Christmas a legal holiday were Alabama in 1836 and then Louisiana and Arkansas in 1838. Food and drink have always starred in Christmas celebrations since Anglo-Saxon times wassail and Lambs wool flowed at boisterous December outings, fusing pagan and Christian customs. From the late Middle Ages, revelers eating Twelfth Night Cakes became subjects of a temporary bean king whose jurisdiction extended to turning the established social order topsy-turvy with pranks. Feudal landlords hosted great feasts for all of their dependents, and groaning boards inventory the realm's elementary wealth but these meals had little in the way of foods distinctly served at Christmas, except perhaps for the garland boar's head that assumed a place of honor on the table. Though much of its pre-industrial history, Christmas was a time when little agrarian work needed to be done. Animals that could not overwinter were slaughtered to provide gluttonous feasts, and socio-economic superiors cajoled their inferiors into tolerating the status quo for one more year, with gifts of food, liquor, and money, and a brief mingling before re- returning to the strict hierarchy. But none of these were the traditions of Christmas dinners. The family Christmas dinner, popularized only in the 19th century, when turkey with graving, stuffing, potatoes, and plum pudding was hailed as the quintessential American Christmas dinner, particularly for those of modest means. The formula, of course, mimicked the Cratchit family dinner in Charles Dickinson's Christmas Carol. When Dickens wrote A Christmas Carol, many believed that Christmas was ill-suited for the urban industrial world. The mumming, masking, and public partying that marked merry old England had degenerated into rowdy bands of underemployed street thugs concentrated in crowded cities, extorting Christmas tips and liquor from an intimidated bourgeoisie in a 19th century take on feudal tradition. Dickinson's Christmas Carol puts a benign face on Christmas, focusing on a quaint and quiet Victorian family holiday, punctuated by small acts of voluntary charity. Called A Perfect Jewel, an opal with light beaming from every part upon its American publication in January of 1844, A Christmas Carol was credited by many with changing attitudes towards Christmas and causing a wonderful outpouring of Christmas good feeling, of Christmas punch brewing, an awful slaughter of Christmas turkeys, and a roasting and basting of Christmas beef. Dickens did not single-handedly invent the signature crash at meal. His legacy was in popularizing a very specific menu, to the exclusion of other foods historically served at Christmas. His story was a roadmap for middle and working class pleasures at the precise moment when both meal structure and the nature of Christmas celebrations were changing. Written as Christmas was evolving into the epitome of Victorian domesticity, Dickens's novella tidily evoked both the dying and the emerging traditions through four distinct food scenes. We'll talk about these after the break. If you're like me, you have fond memories of Christmases past, when you settled in with your family to watch cherished Christmas classics like Rudolph, Frosty, or maybe you remember trekking to the theater to see big holiday releases like A Christmas Story, Home Alone, and my personal favorite, National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. I hope you'll rediscover a piece of that innocence while shopping at retrofestive.ca. While you're here, why not pick up some gifts for your loved ones? We're always posting new items, so be sure to check back often. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. From leg lamps to moose mugs, puzzles and pop culture, Retro Festive is your one-stop online shop for all your holiday gifts. Visit retrofestive.ca and be like Uncle Eddie and get something for you. Something really nice. Don't you wish the holidays would last the entire year? Well, now it can. Head on over to MyMerryChristmas.com where you can enjoy the holidays all year long. You can chat with other Christmas enthusiasts on any topic you can think of. Movies, books, cooking, decorating, anything. If it's about Christmas, it's here. Joining My Merry Christmas is completely free. But if you become a Premier member, you can enjoy extra bonuses such as a yearly Christmas card exchange and Kringle Radio, Santa's exclusive Christmas radio station. For only $19.95, you can become a Premier member of MyMerryChristmas.com for a full year. So head on over to MyMerryChristmas.com and start enjoying Christmas all year long. In Charles Dickinson's Christmas Carol, there are four distinct food scenes. First was the vision of Christmas past when Ebenezer Scrooge was transported back to his apprenticeship under old Fezziwig for the quaint, slightly anachronistic party that Fezziwig hosted for his extended community. The meal was unpretentious and jolly as children, local tradesmen, and Fezziwig's employees feasted on great joints of beef, beer and mince pies, and gambled merrily into the night. The second food event was Scrooge's introduction to the Ghost of Christmas Present, ensconced on a great throne constructed from every imaginable furred and feathered game, supported by barrels of oysters, mincemeats, sausages and plum pudding, luxurious imported oranges, twelfth night cakes and immense bowls of punch, the throne of Christmas Present represented the Christmas gastronomic indulgence of the well-to-do. The throne contrasted with the third food image. Cratchit's shabby tail laid with a scrawny goose that had to be sent out for roasting at the local bake shop, gravy, mashed potatoes, sage and onion stuffing, and applesauce. Such a beast ensued that you might not have thought a goose, the rarest of all birds, a feathered phenomenon to which a black swan was a matter of course. Mrs. Cratchit made the gravy readily beforehand in the little saucepan, hissing hot. Master Peter mashed the potatoes with incredible vigor. Miss Belinda sweetened up the applesauce. Martha dusted the hot plates. At last the dishes were set on and Grace was set. It was succeeded by a breathless pause as Mrs. Cratchit, looking slowly all along the carving knife, preparing to plunge it into the breast. But when she did, and when the long-expected gush of stuffing issued forth, a one murmur of delight arose all around the board. There was never such a goose, its tenderness and flavor. The meal's highlight was a blazing plum pudding garnished with holly that was triumphantly paraded into the flat. The last meal, The real dinner enjoyed by the Cratchits on Christmas Day was a mystery. All we know is that Scrooge sent Cratchit the biggest turkey in the poultry shop. It was also the food image that resonated most deeply in America. Dickinson's choice of these game birds for the Cratchit table perfectly matched the spreading vision of Christmas as a family holiday. Either the modest goose of Christmas present or the more luxurious turkey of Scrooge's charity were family-sized birds that could be within the reach of lower-middle- and working-class households, at least on this special occasion. Either would create a grander, more ceremonial appearance that would indistinct butchers' meat. By bypassing the beef, brawn and venison identified with lordly feasts, Dickens calibrated Christmas dinner to a domestic lower-middle-class setting. In Dickinson's own words, eked out by the applesauce and mashed potatoes. It was a sufficient dinner for the whole family. I talk about how Turkey has taken over the Christmas dinner in a past episode. In Dickinson's time, turkey was a much greater luxury than goose. On Christmas morning, when the penitent Scrooge woke from his dream, he sent a boy to the butcher to buy a Cratchit Surprise turkey. Even for the upper classes, turkey was indeed an extravagant indulgence. The bird didn't even arrive in England from America until 1523 and 1542. Toward the end of the 16th century, turkey started to replace exotic birds such as swans and peacocks on the tables of the English elite. James I is reputed to be the person who first made turkey popular in England as he abhorred any form of pork, so turkey was served at banquets and ceremonial occasions. I'll put the link to the episode about turkey in the show notes. Within a generation, and aided by the changing meal structures of the mid to late 19th century, when affluent and middle-class Americans abandoned service à la Française in favor of more hierarchical modern menus that culminated with a single roast, the centerpiece bird would become the focus of a proper dinner, not only for the humble, but for the comfortable as well. By the turn of the 20th century, Christmas dinner was up for grabs. Dickinson's Christmas Carol formula was still well represented, but it no longer dictated the ideal meal. Foods that imitated holiday totems became the rage in the mid-20th century. Grapefruit salads ringed with green-tinted sugar and a maraschino cherry poinsettia resembled evergreen wreaths. Pears cut like Christmas trees were garnished with cubes of cream cheese presents painted with food-colouring ribbons. And cherry angel food cakes, layered with lime gelatin and holding Noel candles all jockeyed for position on Christmas tables next to the modern riff on mince pies, now made without meat. Unlike Thanksgiving, with its immutable elements of turkey, corn, pumpkin, and cranberries, regardless of one's socio-economic status, American Christmas has become the expression of class, purse, and ethnic origins with only occasional nods to unifying tradition. Archaic puddings have lost their place on the table, but plum pudding, purchased, not homemade, is trotted out annually by those most nostalgic, in homage to the image of Christmas as an ancient holiday. The turkey itself is one of several discretionary options at Christmas, and it tends to have class associations. From the many 20th century cookbooks that offer menus for Christmas, those that suggest only turkey tend to be geared to modest households, where the elite plumb delicacies of game, beef, and the like, in addition to a traditional turkey dinner. Christmas customs in America, in fact, did much to shape the festival throughout the English-speaking world during the 19th century. Can we confidently do so when we read passages such as this from stave three of A Christmas Carol? But soon the steeples called good people all to church and chapel, and away they came, flocking through the streets in their best clothes and with their gayest faces. And at the same time, there emerged from scores of by-streets, lanes, and nameless turnings, innumerable people carrying their dinners to the baker's shops. The sight of these poor revelers appeared to interest the spirit very much, for he stood with the scrooge behind him in a baker's doorway, and taking off the covers as their bearers passed, sprinkled incense on their dinners from his torch. And it was a very uncommon kind of torch, for once or twice, when there were angry words between some dinner carriers who jostled each other, he shed just a few drops of water on them from it, and their good humour was restored directly. For they said, it was a shame to quarrel on Christmas Day. And so it was. God love it. So it was. There is no yearning for revelry in the Squire's great hall here. No mooning over decaying traditions. No anxiety about signs of social class. Dickens affectionately contemplates what his contemporaries actually did at Christmas time, humble contemporaries in particular, and he infuses his narrative with magical and fantastic elements. Either we attribute all this to Dickens' own experience and imagination, or we assume that he had congenial models to inspire him, and the best available models were American. I'm Glenn Warren, and thank you for listening to this serving of Seasons Eatings. Seasons Eatings is available on all your major podcast players. Please, if you can leave a review about the show, so we can spread the Christmas cheer. And I know we all get busy, especially during the holidays. So just sharing the podcast with someone you know who loves Christmas would mean so much. Also, I would love to hear from you. Send me an email at SeasonsEatingsPodcast at gmail.com and let me know how you like the show, suggestions for future episodes, or just to say hi. And if you let me know you've left a review, I'll send you a Seasons Eating sticker for your trouble, as well as my unwavering gratitude. And if you're feeling extra generous this season, you can buy me an eggnog. Head on over to SeasonsEatingsPodcast.com and click on the little cup in the corner. Each small donation helps with the daily running of the podcast and is greatly appreciated. Seasons Eatings is also part of the Christmas Podcast Network. So head on over to christmaspodcast.com and find your next podcast addiction. All music for Seasons Eatings is used under the Creative Commons license.